Amen. Who was here last week? I was not here. Me and my family were in Florida. We were checking our son Joshua. Maybe you guys remember him. He's the keyboard player that we're missing that now has grown into a full-grown man. Did you see him this morning with the hat on? Um, That was actually our pastor Jeff up there playing keys. But Josh is now in college. Uh, We checked him in last week in his dorm. And uh, I just want to thank everybody who prayed. Uh, Him and his brother Micah, who's back in the light booth uh, this morning, uh, traveled across the country to Florida uh, with a Honda Accord with a bumper nearly falling off, uh, held together by screws, literally. And uh, I was praying very, my prayer life increased tremendously last week. And uh, God answered those prayers. I, I thank you for those that were thinking of them and praying for them. Uh, Josh has checked into his dorm and is preparing to begin his en- aerospace engineering classes. Literally rocket science. Yeah. So, who knows what plans God has for him, but keep him in your prayers, and I'm sure uh, he'll be back with us during his college breaks, um, or mom and dad will cry a lot, so we want him back, and, and we miss him, so thank you for that. Um, so we're looking at the book of Daniel, and our title for the series that was begun last week with Pastor Kurt is, what does it look like to have un- shakable hope in the midst of uncertain times? What does it look like for us to be able to have a hope that is grounded in God, grounded in a faith that says there's nothing that could shake me? There's no circumstance in this world, nothing that could come at me that could ever rock me off my foundation that is found in Christ Jesus, my Lord. What does it look like for us to develop that kind of hope in our lives and to display that kind of hope to others? That's what our series is all about in the book of Daniel. So I'm excited. This morning we have the first half of chapter 2. The first half of chapter 2. The second half will be taught by Pastor Kurt next week, so you don't want to miss that. Um, But I've entitled this first half of chapter 2, Facing the Impossible. Facing the impossible. How many of you guys have ever faced a situation that, humanly speaking, seemed impossible? Right? Something that was beyond your own ability to solve. Maybe it's a relational issue. You can't control the other person. Right? Maybe it's a health issue. You can't control the diagnosis. Maybe it's a financial issue. You can't, humanly speaking, meet all of your obligations. Whatever it might be, I think as humans in this world, we often face situations that seem impossible. What would it look like for us to face those situations and overcome them the way that Daniel did? That's what our focus is this morning. So join me in the book of Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to begin together. I want to talk a little bit about the layout of the book because I think this is very interesting and it's very helpful in understanding what the writer, the author of Daniel, is trying to convey to us. So chapter 1 is an introduction chapter. It's, it's written in the original language of Hebrew. Obviously, we don't read Hebrew today. We read a translation in English, our language here in America. And the Bible has been translated in many different translations, by the way. We are so blessed as English speakers to have a variety 
of translations. We have chosen here at Crossroads to use a translation called the Holman translation. There's nothing sacred about the Holman English translation. There are many good translations of the Bible in English. And so whichever one you choose to use, that's great, as long as it's faithful to the text, the original Hebrew that was written in the Old Testament, and also um, the Greek in the New Testament. So we have we have this uh, section of Daniel, and it's interesting because the, the Bible was originally written in three languages. Hebrew, most of the Old Testament is Hebrew. M- most of the New Testament is Greek. But there's this third language that Daniel actually is written in, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, and it's the language of Aramaic. Aramaic was the, the trade language, if you will, the language of the common people during Daniel's day, starting in about the 7th century before Christ, all the way up until Alexander the Great started conquering that region, and Greek took over as the trade or common language. We see that as Jesus comes on the scene, what was the language that the New Testament was written in? It was written in Greek, right? Because Alexander the Great had conquered the land, had set up the language as being Greek, and it replaced Aramaic. But back during Daniel's time, we have this section written in Aramaic. And the question is, why? Why does the author of Daniel switch from Hebrew in chapter 1 and then all of a sudden write in Aramaic in chapter 2 through 7 and then in chapters 8 through 12 switch back to Hebrew? What is he trying to convey? Well, there are a couple of things. I'm going to introduce you to some literature devices in the Bible. One is called chiasm. Everybody say chiasm. Okay, you guys are scholars now, right? And what is chiasm in the Bible? Well, it's a, it's a literary design that does something like this. A, B, C, C, B, A, right? Where the A matches the A, the B matches the B, and the C matches the C. And the author of Daniel is writing in Aramaic in chapters 2 through 7, and he's pairing chapter 2 with 7, chapter 3 with 6, and chapter 4 with 5 in a chiastic literary form. What is he trying to convey? Well, I think we're going to see that as we journey through this, but he's going to talk about some of the the, the main themes that are found in this section, and I think he also is intending to convey that there's a new audience that I want to pay attention to this section, and it's the audience of the, the common man. You know, chapter 1 was an intro, and chapters 8 through 12 is really dealing with the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. But chapters 2 through 7 is life in Babylon. What does that look like for us to live out our faith amongst a people that don't know God? And so, so the author writes in a language that could be understood by anyone of that day, including the Gentiles that are living in Babylon. So what is, these, uh, what is this chiasm pair? Well, chapters 2 and chapter 7 are dreams. They're dreams. Chapter 2 is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king over Babylon. And in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And the two dreams have a common interpretation. It's almost as if the author is doubling down on like, this is the reality that God is conveying to the world. So they're dreams, and it's conveying that God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. 
we need to recognize that God ultimately is the one who raises kingdoms and causes kingdoms to fall. Look at human history. Where's the Roman Empire today? If we lived back then, it would seem like it was an unshakable kingdom that would last forever. And yet it is in ruins today. Today we live in a place called America, and it seems like America could never fall. America could never go away. But history tells us otherwise. The kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But God is on the throne and he is in control of it all. And that is what is conveyed here in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. The second pairing is chapters 3 and 6. And I've labeled it as drama. Drama. These are events, and you're going to get an opportunity in a couple weeks to hear chapter 3 and then later on chapter 6. But, but they're dramatic events that are told about these characters, Daniel and his friends, who are living out their faith in a land that doesn't like God, that doesn't respect God. And what ensues is dramatic events in their lives. Dramatic events and dramatic rescues by God. So I've labeled that section drama, and it involves the fiery furnace and the lion's den. Maybe you've heard those stories. We're going to actually go through them in depth in the next few weeks, so don't miss out on that. And it really conveys that God is Savior. So God is sovereign, but God is also Savior. He's intimately concerned with rescuing humanity from their plight, from their own mess many times, or from the messes that are created in their lives because of the, the, the sinful culture in which they live. And so we have an emphasis on that here in the book of Daniel, and the author is creating this chiastic design to point us to these things and to emphasize them for us. And finally, in chapters 4 and 5, the final pairing is, I've entitled it, Defiance. Defiance. You have two kings who refuse to submit their thrones to God. Who, who, even though they've been exposed to these men who represent Yahweh, represent God, the living God of heaven, and they are testifying and they are showing powerful things in these kings' lives and experience that he is real and he is the God to be feared and to follow, they refuse to bow their knee and their thrones to this God. And the result is they are humbled. They are judged. They are dealt with for their pride and for their defiance. And it really emphasizes that God, the living God, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that God is superior to all other gods in any other culture. And that's what we get from the design of Daniel. Now, what's cool, and I don't, I, we're not going to get into this for, for this section of Daniel, because we're not going to teach Jan, Daniel 7 through 12 this go-around. I hope to do it at some point. But Daniel 7 through 12 is also a chiastic design. It's 7 pat, matches with 12, 8 matches with 11, and 9 and 10 go together. So it's almost like the author of Daniel, in the beauty of his writing, creates an intro chapter that we just looked at last week, chapter 1, and then creates two pairing chiastic designs. One is primarily in Aramaic, and the second is primarily in Hebrew. And he's trying to emphasize some things through the writing of his book that we need to pay attention to. Amen? 
So this first, this first section of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, I call it a four-act play. We're going to look at the first 25 verses, and I believe that there are four acts. You guys are people that have attended plays, right? You get the act one, and then you get an intermission where you get to eat a lot of popcorn, and then you get back to your seats because you're excited for act two, right? And sometimes there's even an act three or four if you're going to a long play, right? So God, God has these acts or movements within this story that have different elements that we need to pay attention to, and I think we can learn from. And act number one is called, I entitled it, A Disturbance in the Kingdom. A disturbance in the kingdom. Listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. Now I want to talk a little bit about this second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. The date of this, many scholars believe, was about 603 B.C. So this is about 600 years before the birth of Jesus that this, these events were transpiring in the life of Daniel. Second year of his reign is interesting because we see in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, that it said that, that they took Daniel and his friends and they spent three years in training. Do you remember that? They spent three years in training and in service before they were elevated into their role to serve the king. So how could it be the second year of the king's reign if they were already there three years? Well, the answer to that is Nebuchadnezzar did not actually fully take on the throne until his father died. And so his father's name was Nebopalazar. How many like that one? Nebopalazar. And then he named his kid Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because Nebo was one of their gods. And, and they were certainly uh, naming things after their gods in that day. So Nebuchadnezzar was actually on the throne back in Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar was sacking Jerusalem and taking Daniel and his friends prisoners. So by the time they reached back into Babylon, the king had died. His father had died. And then he was exalted to the throne. And so that's where the, the timing comes in. And we, we see that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams in the second year of his reign that troubled him. And sleep deserted him. How many have ever had a nightmare? Any nightmares in the room? I recently had a nightmare. And this nightmare scared me. All right? Because there was this faceless image. Like it was like, it looked like a human being coming after me. But the, but the, but the face was missing. It was just like blank. And this, 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 person in my dream was coming at me. And so I was retreating the whole time in my dream. I was just kept retreating, right? But I was telling this thing to get away from me, to go away, right? And to stop. It better stop. And finally, I, I kind of got cornered. I got backed into a corner. And so in my dream, it was so intense that this thing was after me that this thing was coming at me, that I just was like, okay, I got to fight it off. And so I just started punching it punching it right in the face in my dream. And I just kept punching it. Every time I punched it, it backed up like an inch, but then it just come back at me. So as long as I kept going like this, it just stayed away. And it didn't get to me. And all of a sudden I hear, ow, 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 what are you doing? Ow, stop hitting me. And I was awakened from my dream and I was punching my wife, Amy, in the face. 
Right, babe? Yeah, she still has the bru bruises, I'm sure, to prove it, right? And what I realized is that dream had so troubled my spirit that my physical actions were coming out of that even though I was unconscious. I was not aware that I was physically punching. And unfortunately, my wife was facing me in bed, and uh, she took the brunt of my punches. So I can relate with that. I'm sure you can relate with a dream. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and you have to understand, in that day, dreams were significant. It was a way they thought the gods would relay information to them was through their dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar had this intense dream, and it seems to be that it was a recurring dream. Because the, the verb here is plural. There were dreams, or not the verb, the noun, is plural. That he had multiple dreams, but it doesn't seem like they were different. They were all of the same category, and it disturbed him because it kept dreaming this thing. And he was just bothered in his spirit. He wanted to know what is going on here. There was a disturbance in the kingdom. So verse 2, so the king gave orders to summon the diviner, the priests, the mediums, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Literally, that word Chaldeans is like astrologers. You know, the people who know the signs of the zodiac and can read your palm and figure everything out, or so they claim. There were, it, it, things haven't changed, have they? In that day, 600 years before Jesus, and in 2022, you can consult all of those types of sources for answers. And the king, not knowing any better, said, I gotta, I gotta get an answer to this dream. So I'm gonna bring in every wise man, every person who claims to have some sort of knowledge of the other world, the afterlife, and I want to bring them in, and they, they're going to stand before me to account. And I want them to tell me, tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, the king said to them, I have had a dream, and I am anxious to understand it. Okay, okay. Imagine standing before the king, right? Who has the power, by the way, to cut your head off with just like a flick of the wrist, right? He is in charge of that kingdom, and he can issue the death penalty for any and every reason. So it's intimidating to stand before the king. It's not a pleasant experience, especially when he's disturbed, especially when he is upset. I have had a dream, and I am anxious to understand it. Now we move into Act 2. Act 2, I have entitled, A Desperate Situation Ensues. There's a desperate situation that arises out of the king's disturbing dream. Let's read about it. Verse 4, that Chaldeans spoke to the king. This is where Aramaic begins in the text, right here. As soon as the Chaldeans or the astrologers or these wise men spoke to the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give you the interpretation. Sounds reasonable, right? Tell us what you dreamt, and we'll figure out what it means. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a garbage dump. That's one um, harsh edict, is it not? And it seems even like, man, this is, this is beyond reason. This is unreasonable, king. You don't want us to just understand once you tell us the, the vision that you had, what it means. You want us to read your mind and tell you the vision? 
What is going on? What is going on here? Verse 6, but if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. Come on, wise men. You guys claim to have some sort of knowledge of the divine realm. Some sort of knowledge and, and ability to read into the unknown world. The world in which God lives. So if you can claim to do that, then certainly you can read my mind. Certainly you can tell me my dream. But if not, you're probably all frauds, like I've always suspected. You probably all should deserve to die. That's what the king is saying. And the, the, these poor wise men, verse 7, they answered a second time. May the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will give you the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time, because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. There is one result for that. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know you can give me its interpretation. In other words, he goes, I don't believe you're going to make up some sort of thing if I tell you what I dreamt. You're going to try and convince me that my dream meant this and this and this, but I don't believe it because you don't even have the ability to see the world of dreams. So why would I trust you with the interpretation if you can't read my mind? Man, what a harsh situation, right? Does this expose phonies? Yeah, it does, right? It'd be like if I went into, you know, one of these current palm readers and said, you know what, you can't even look at my palm. Tell me what, what my lines look like on my palm, right? You claim to be able to read my palm, well, then you should know what my palm already looks like, right? And they'd go, you're crazy. Like, we got to see your palm so we can fake a story and make you believe it, right? So verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth, listen to this, this is the astrologers, the wise men of his kingdom. They respond to the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. What are they acknowledging? It's humanly impossible. It's humanly impossible to satisfy the king's request. It would take a divine influence, a divine uh, intervention in order for us to achieve the king's demand. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any diviner priest, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals. In other words, there's a god realm, and there's a human realm, and they never connect. There's never a time where the god realm connects to the human realm, that's impossible, king. It can't happen. It's a big statement, and we're going to see the result of this in a little bit. Because of this, the king became violently angry. I wouldn't want to have been there right then. He starts hucking stuff at you, like yelling, who knows, right? Violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm just imagining the wise men are running with their tails between their legs, scurrying outside the, the palace there, trying to go hide somewhere, because when the king gives an order to kill people, we're going to see in a minute, there's a guy named, he's like the executioner. That's his job, to carry out executions on behalf of the king's orders. And it, and it, and it commences right away. So verse 13, the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed. And they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Interesting here because we don't know, we don't see Daniel and his friends standing before the king in this story. But because Daniel and his friends were part of the group of people considered to be the wise, the learned, the, you know, the, the, the elite that served the king's court, they fell under this same condemnation. They fell under this same curse, if you will, that the rest of the wise men fell under. It's a serious and a desperate situation. There's no human solution. They're desperate for God's intervention. Have you ever been there? I've been there. I've been there. You know, I'm going to tell you one of the times that I was in a situation that was desperate. It was my wife and I, I was in college still. I was up in Portland, Oregon, and um, I was up there, and we were struggling financially, big time, right? Because I was paying the school a bunch of money. I was paying for, you know, car insurance. I had to make sure the bills were paid, electricity. We were living in an apartment together. And when it came to the end of the day, and I made sure God got his tithe, right? Because we made a commitment when we got married that God was going to come first in all areas of our life financially included, right? So I, I paid all that, gave God his tithe first, and I looked at my checkbook at the end of the day, and there was like pennies left, right? There wasn't anything left. And the problem is we didn't have any groceries that month. Problem is we were looking at our cabinets and our cupboards, and we didn't see any food. But my wife and I just like, hey, you know, like, God's got us. We can eat top ramen. I was, I'm used to it from college days, right? We can figure it out. We'll, we'll make it. You know, we were, just, we were just feeling like, okay, God's got us, you know. But we did, we sat down, we prayed, and we, we asked God to take care of us. And no kidding, within just a short time, we hear a knock at our door. And there was a knock on our door, and there was a bunch of people there with grocery sacks of groceries. And they go, they said, um, hey, uh, we just, we're from the church that you guys started attending. We had started attending a little church there, and, and we had never put in a prayer request that we didn't have groceries. We'd never put in like a prayer, you know, hey, like call up the church and try and beg for money. We never did any of that. We just prayed to God and we sought his help. And all of a sudden, God had already orchestrated because they had to already get the groceries, right? They already had to go through all the work before we even prayed, by the way. And they had already thought of us as maybe needing help in that area. God had led them separately to show up at our door in a moment of need and take care of us with supernatural provision. It was beyond my ability. I couldn't earn any more money. We were broke. My wife was working full time. She was broke. We were all broke, right? But God is not broke. Amen? Amen. So when we reached out to God, he provided in a supernatural way. And it was amazing to experience that. That's not the only time we've experienced supernatural intervention into our lives, into our marriage, into our family. But let me just say this, that God is for real. And God is the same God here that Daniel and his friends worship, but now they're under an execution order. 
What a desperate situation they face. How should we respond when facing the seemingly impossible, the overwhelming, the beyond you situation in life? I believe in this next section we get some answers. We get the example of Daniel. In this next act, Act 3, I've entitled, A Deliverance is Sought. A Deliverance is Sought. Verse 14, then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch. This guy named Arioch comes to Daniel. Because remember, all of them are under the curse of death from the king's edict. He comes to him, and, and Daniel responds to him with tact and discretion. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, literally that word is executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Why is it so urgent? Why is it so like over the top? What is going on? This kind of tells you that Daniel wasn't there, right? It doesn't seem like Daniel was in the king's presence. So he's just blown away. A guy shows up his door, he has, hey, I'm here to kill you. You're, you're a dead man. Why? What, what's going on? Like, can you calm down just a second and at least explain things to me? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. Now, why do you think Arioch had patience to explain it to Daniel? I think a couple of reasons. One was because of the way Daniel greeted him with tact and discretion. If the executioner shows up at your door and you tick him off, what's going to happen? Right? But what if you are polite and you're patient? I also think that Daniel already had a reputation. Right? You remember chapter 1? There was already a reputation of Daniel being unique and different than the other men. And so the, even the executioner knew this and was willing to give him at least an explanation before he executed the king's command. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. This is interesting. Daniel, this takes great courage because you don't usually just go show up to the king's place. You get an invitation to join the king. But Daniel says, you know what? I'm going in because God is with me and I need to get some more time here. And so he is bold. He is courageous. And he faces this head on in faith. Daniel went in and asked the king to give him some more time so he could give the king the interpretation. Step one, don't react out of fear. When you face the impossible, don't react out of fear, frustration, and panic. Take time to pursue truth wisdom, and understanding. Amen? That's Daniel's example. Did he, uh, did he react out of fear, frustration, and anger? Or did he react with this discernment, this, this pursuit of, I need to figure this out. I need truth. I need wisdom. And I need a little more time. It's okay to take time when you're in the situation of impossible. Don't rush your reactions. Verse 17, then Daniel went, Daniel went to, the house, to his house and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about the matter. These were just their Hebrew names. Step two, do you see what Daniel does? He goes and he gets help. He goes and he talks to his friends, right? Step two is don't isolate yourself. 
reach out to those in God's family who you know can help you bear the burden. Amen? We aren't meant to do impossible alone. So if you face an impossible situation, don't go it alone. That's the worst thing you can do. That's what Satan wants you to try and do. He wants to isolate you. He wants to get you to where you're in a place where you're not talking to anybody else who you know is a godly person, who you know understands who God is and can give you the right kind of wisdom and next steps to take. Don't isolate yourself. I have a pastor friend from college that is going through a really difficult season. His son got addicted to drugs. So I'm connected to him on Facebook, and he, he created a little private group, and he invited me, just an old friend from college, to join that private group. And in that group, he's been sharing the details of what his son is going through. And it's breaking his heart. He's desperate, because this, this kid has become violent, has hurt himself and others in the family. He had to put out a restraining order on his own son. And he is a pastor of a church, And so for him to like go public with that, it could destroy him, right? But he needed help. And so he said, how can I get the help I need without just like going in front of the entire church? People who don't maybe understand, aren't mature enough to realize like even pastors have tough stuff, right? So he creates a group of people that he knows love God from his past. And he shares. He asks for prayer. He asks for guidance and wisdom from that group. That's what we need to do. The devil wants you to suffer alone. He doesn't want you to bring all your struggles into the light. Invite others from God's family to surround you. But that's exactly what Daniel does. He invites others to surround him. By the way, they're also under this edict. So he probably is filling them in a little bit too. Verse 18, he urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. Step number three, don't put your hope solely in man, solely in human solutions. Daniel doesn't go, hey, let's just try and figure this out on our own. Let's sit down and create a couple Venn diagrams. That isn't what he's doing, is he? No, he's saying... Join me in seeking the Lord. Join me in praying for God to answer and meet our need in this moment. Seek the God of heaven's intervention through fervent prayer. Verse 19, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of heaven. I love step four. Don't take credit for your success. Praise God. Thank him for his goodness, for his sovereignty, for his help over every situation in life. Give him the glory. Verse 20, and so Daniel praises the God of heaven and declares, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power and now you have let me know what we have asked of you. 
for you have let me know the king's mystery or the king's matter. We'll just wait. I love you, Carol. You're awesome. It happens to me too. I have it in my pocket. I made sure it was, yeah. All right, so. So, step five. Step five is don't forget to point people to Jesus. Don't forget to point people to Jesus. Testify about who he is and what he's done in your life. What he's done for you. Amen? I love this because Daniel's got the answer. And was his first reaction to run into the king or to spend time praising God? Which one? The text tells us that first he praised and he thanked God. I would be like, I got the answer. I can figure it all out. Every, God's given me what I need. And I would just be like focused on there. Daniel takes time to say, no, it's time to give you glory, God. It's time to give you praise. It's time to testify of who you are and the goodness of what you've done in my life. Verse 24, this is the final act of our section here. Act four, a divine intercessor is provided. I love this act. This is where, the, this is where it all comes together. A divine intercessor is provided. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he came and said to him, Don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. This is interesting because Daniel could have said, You know what? They all deserve death. They're a bunch of phonies, a bunch of frauds. So go ahead and execute them. Just don't get me and my friends. Right? Would you not be tempted to do that? In this situation, these guys are going to give Daniel a hard time. They probably already have, right? These guys, these phonies that serve the king, they're jealous of Daniel. They don't like him because of God's favor on his life. So here's his chance to get rid of him, get rid of them. But no, he stands in the gap of sinners. Did you hear me? Does he desire they get what they deserve, or does he desire that they get grace? Where's our hearts, people? Are we standing in the gap for those around us that have hurt us, that have offended us? This challenged me this week. We got to stand in the gap, even of those that are guilty, even of those that are frauds. We stand in the gap, and we plead with the executioner to delay, to still spare, that they might receive God's grace and their mercy in their lives. Amen? Then verse 25, verse 25, then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man. Listen to this. This is funny, Arioch. Who went to Arioch? Daniel went to Arioch. Arioch goes to the king goes, I found a guy. <laughs> Typical, right? Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said, I found a man, I want credit, king, among the Judean exiles. What tribe was he a part of? Judah. Judah. Wait a second. He's an intercessor that's from the tribe of Judah, standing the gap of sinners? Hmm. I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. In other words, who can remove the death sentence that's over the people. 
because that's what the king wanted. He needed. He would not remove the death sentence unless first the dream and its interpretation was given to him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to be responding in just a minute, but I want to tell you guys something. And this was told by Jesus himself in John chapter 5, verse 39. He's speaking to the Jews. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he's not just speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to the elite, the teachers of the law, the ones who memorized the Old Testament. They knew the story of Daniel. This is what he says to him in, in John chapter 5, verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about who? About me, Jesus says. What is he saying there? He's saying that the scriptures, what scriptures did they have then? They had the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament point to? They point to Jesus. Jesus himself says that in verse 40, and you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Listen, I'm going to recount these four acts as we close. Act one, what was it? A disturbance in the kingdom. Something disturbed the king's heart. Do you realize that the king who's on his throne in heaven has been disturbed? His kingdom has been rocked by sin and rebellion of people on this earth. It's been rocked. The second act that we looked at in this story, a desperate situation ensues. What is the desperate situation? The wages of sin is death, people. Sin brings upon God's judgment, righteous judgment. The king had every right to say, you guys are dead if you don't satisfy this, if you don't take care of this. The king of heaven says, you all are under a death sentence because of your offense because of your phoniness, because you all have sinned and offended the king. Act three, a deliverance is sought. Only God can provide the answer. Why do we look for solutions in this life? Why do we look for hope in this world that comes from just man? It is not gonna come from man, it comes from heaven. The solution has come from heaven. Are we seeking it out? Are we seeking it with all of our hearts? Act four, divine intercessor is provided. Who is that divine intercessor? In this story, it was Daniel. But Daniel is a type. He's a foreshadowing of a much greater savior and deliverer and intercessor from the tribe of Judah. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to intercede for the people, to satisfy the requirements of the holy king of heaven. And he shed his blood on a cross to pay for our sin, to satisfy the king's righteous anger. This story is not just about Daniel and his friends. This story is about you and me and about our need for a king that can give us unshakable hope. Amen? Amen. Do you know him this morning? If you don't, there'll be a time of response, a time to seek out and pray with someone. Maybe you're facing the impossible and you need prayer. Maybe you don't know this Savior and you want to meet him. You have an opportunity as we close this morning in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the story of Daniel. God, thank you that you are a God 
with all the answers. God, we just ask that you might speak into our hearts, prick our hearts, and, 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 and bring us back to you, God, the God of hope, the God of unshakable hope. We all face desperate situations. God, help us to turn to you with our need. In Jesus' name, amen.